Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Just 
Pro-Life Fridays Radio. It is Friday the 13th. It's Jason Day. So, my friend Michael Mitchell, I said I'd give you a shout-out. Here it is. Shout-out! How you doing, Thomas? I'm good. How are you? All right. Please, can you please read our scripture for today? Absolutely. But before I do, Jason sucks. That's all. Okay. <laughs> now that I got that, now that I got that out the way. Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse nineteen says, "I record this day against you." that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Lord, thank you for another opportunity to host our show, Lord God, for Life Fridays Radio. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be advocates for life and that we are consistent straight across the board. We pray that you would bless our guest today and that the message would be able to touch the heart and compel people to work and to fight for life as a whole. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I am your host, Letitia Wong, and with my co-host, Thomas Smith. Welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. And, as I said today, uh, it is September 13th, and I, I really did have a, a worse day today than I did in the last week. Uh, no, I didn't have any hockey masked murderers come flying at me with a scalpel, but I, I woke up late today because I was so tired. And so, I consequently, my son was late to school because I overslept because he over. <laughs> overslept and didn't wake him up so he overslept so we were late to school and I was like I couldn't get everything into and at the same time and I just for a while there I had a whole trail of things that I was not doing quite right so phew I'm so glad that when today is over I'm not going to do that again right (laughs) only me so how you doing how you been doing who me I am tired, but you know what? I got a call today from Senator Roy Blunt's office, and, you know, we'll see how things go with that. Was that a personal call or a robocall? His policy, his policy of His what? Personal call. His policy oh. advisor. 
Oh, so it okay. So it wasn't uh, give me money call. Yep. They're going to be willing. They're wanting to work with us on the um, whole pro-life issue, and we had a good, we had a long discussion. We differ on strategies, and and so much as you know, she explains that um, you know part of their strategy build with the exception clause in it. And right. uh, one of the things I explained to her, and I told her, I said, the problem with that is that when those bills are passed, then then they're left in the condition that they're in, and nobody ever works to um, work to get the exceptions clause out of the bill and I mean we had a we had a uh, a very long conversation, probably talked about an hour and um and I and I um was telling her why why it was personal to me and and then I, I pointed something out to her. I said the difference between you and what a lot of people who hold in the pro-life movement who hold the exception stance is that you want to see an eventual end to abortion as a whole, period. They don't really care. And I said, that is the difference. I said, I can work with you in that. But there are a lot of people on the pro-life side who the exceptions doesn't matter to them. If they get some, you know, if they have a victory, then they're cool with that. And, you know, as you know, Letitia, for me, that that's kind of personal. That's kind of personal. So... That's about the gist of our conversation, and I extended an invitation to um, them to come to the pro-life banquet in October. So we'll see uh, what happens, and if there's any business owners out in the Kansas City area pro-life who would like to be sponsored, just send me an email at prolifewithoutexceptions at gmail dot com. There you go. Awesome. Well, very nice. Well, guess what today is? Well, it's not today. It was yesterday. So that's not fair. Yesterday was the 8th annual Russian Day of Conception. And no, it's not a religious thing. We're not talking about uh, Mary. We're not talking about the Orthodox Russian Church. Uh, it's a, Russian, a national Russian day of conception. The uh, interesting thing is it's a national holiday, meaning people take a day off of work to observe this holiday. Oh, wow. And um, it it is exactly what it implies, day of conception. Right. 
for for those of you who are slow on the take, it is Vladimir Putin's baby making initiative. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Ooh. Well, uh, we should be asking, why do they need such a day? If you don't want to ask questions, then go have a ball. But the purpose is to make babies. <laughs> Why do they need such a day? And, and the tr- and the truth of the matter is, uh, by the numbers, and the numbers don't lie, Russia has been in a birth rate free fall for probably the better part of two decades. Uh, I don't have the exact uh, figure of how long that their birth rate decline has been. I know there's a chart out there somewhere. I don't have it in front of me. But it has been a while enough so that the Russian president uh, back in 2007 made it a national holiday for everybody to take a day off of work and go make uh, try to make a baby with somebody. <laughs> so, uh, and let's see, let's look this up on Wikipedia. That'll be fun. Day of Conception. Also known as Procreation Day. Well, that was, that was that's a little more descriptive. Not implied there. It takes place on September 12th, and couples who then have a child on June 12th are rewarded by the regional government that uh, in the region of Russia that they live in. So uh, the history of this is in 2006. Uh, Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address had said that the demographic crisis in Russia was the most urgent problem facing the country and announced efforts to boost Russia's birth rate, including cash incentives to families that have more than one child. Interesting, interesting. So... Um, what are the prizes that some families can receive for having a baby? Let's see. At one point, some received uh, Jeeps. That car. Now, I like that because Jeeps are manufactured in the United States. So that's that's pretty nice. Yep. Uh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. They also said the UAZ Patriot, a sport utility vehicle made in Yulanov. Other contestants won video cameras, TVs, refrigerators, and washing machines. Yeah, that's not bad. The question is, we need to focus on, though, for the ethical portion of our show, is why do they need to pay people in prizes and money to have children? Hmm. Do you remember, well, back before we were born, do you remember there was a book that was written uh, 1970? I'm trying to find the date on this so I can get it right. The ni- 1976, I believe. It's called The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. I've heard of it, but I was born in 74, so I was two. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you remember that there was a book that was written back in the 70s. Yeah. Well, well, Paul Ehrlich and, and his wife had written several other books 
another one called the population explosion. And if you go looking looking up on Amazon.com and you look for search for this book, they'll always suggest more books down on the bottom of the page of similar books in that in the vein. So just scanning down the titles, uh, the coming population crash, the population, the real population bomb, population bomb, overpopulation, population, population, population control. There seems to be a theme that has entered in our public dialogue, in academia, in our houses of legislators, that pushes this idea that there are too many people on earth and the best thing we can do for ourselves is to reduce our human numbers. And in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, when in particular when the the socialists of the world, particularly in Russia, particularly in communist countries, uh, and here in the United States, among progressive circles, this idea that we have an overpopulation in the United States, in the world, it's going to cause massive starvation and death. And, you know, I don't really understand the death part. I mean, we want death anyway. But anyway, I digress. Uh, had had clung on to this idea that there was going to be this huge population, and so people who are in were in places of power and able to implement these things started to push this idea of population control. What does that include? Birth control, abortion, and uh, healthcare rationing and um, sterilization. The idea was that human beings should stop reproducing, stop having so many children, because we're hurting and we're raping the earth. And so I think people listened, especially in countries where this progressive Marxist, socialist, communist thought prevailed, like countries like Russia and China, where both states have been very controlling of their people. China is a huge example of, of this continuing, where they have this one-child policy. And in about, as I take this digression and talk about China for a minute, as a as as uh, population experts and statisticians look at the population in China, it is on the brink of a similar type of freefall that Russia is experiencing right now, because their one-child policy in China is uh, well. It, like a lot of things, it runs on a curve. The populations run on this curve, and when you institute uh, the population control that they have had, at some point in time, the results of that population control are going to be manifest. 
So Russia is now seeing the results of population control manifesting in their country. And surprise, it's not a good thing. But, 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 but all those population control experts who wrote books in the 70s said that unless we have population control, it's going to be bad. And now that we have the results of population control in massively large countries like Russia, now that their numbers are falling, we find that it's bad. And they're instituting real uh, state-sponsored holidays to encourage people to have children. Now, I want you to take your American sensibilities, because I think we're all right in this area, and say, what in the world does the government have anything to do with encouraging or discouraging or whatsoever how many children couples should have? But in the progressive mindset, and you'll find this here in the U.S. too, it's not unusual for progressives and socialists and statists, I should say, statists, to to show a heavy hand and say and tell people what kind of car they should drive, how much salt they should have in their food, or how much salt they shouldn't have in their food. How what size of soda? They should drink and limit the amount of soda at at convenience stores and and restaurants that you can have. Sound familiar? All the way to the point uh, where we have had real real progressives suggest that even in America, women should have uh, birthing licenses, birth licenses. Basically, you have to get permission from the government in order to have a child. That's what is instituted in China. The government has to permit you to have children. You have to be allowed and deemed fit by a government agency to have children in order to proceed to have children. And guess what? If you happen to miss your window and your permit expires, and this is in China, you can't apply for another one. <laughs> I, I, okay, so uh, I digress yet again. So here's the problem that, that Russia is trying to address. They're falling, 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 fast-falling population. They're trying to make up for it by encouraging and using state endorsement to encourage people to have children. But you also, guess what, is also happening in Russia. They are losing 2%, up to 2% of their potential population every year through abortion. I have up on my desktop right now an article that was written um, about an author who wrote a book called Implosion, The End of Russia and What It Means for America. I'm going to get this book 
because I am so curious as to what it says. Uh, I think the research that this man has done, whether it's good research or bad research, is not important right now. Right now I want to see his numbers and what his, his numbers have shown. And what he, he was interviewed by, you know, this is not, this is not the blaze, if those, for, for those of you who dislike the blaze. This is the Daily Caller. <laughs> uh, interviewed, a reporter from the Daily Caller had interviewed the author of Implosion, whose name is Ian Berman, Elon Berman, sorry, foreign policy expert. And he says, the scale of social and cultural rot in contemporary Russian society is truly staggering. He says, take abortion for instance. According to official estimates, almost 1.2 million abortions are performed in Russia every year. That equals out to 300 babies every hour. According to unofficial projections, however, the true abortion rate could be as much as double that figure. Remember, there's a huge underbelly of underreported and unreported abortions, which means that close to 2% of Russia's potential population is being terminated every year. And that's on the abortion front alone. I mean, when you count natural death and death due to disease and um, their high rate of HIV infection, which, I mean, that is a whole other subject itself. I mean, I'm not going to get into that, but needless to say, they have a high rate of HIV infection, which, given their, uh, their health care not being as good as the United States, results in a lot of HIV-related deaths per year. So simply put, he says, Russia is a dying project, and the Russians themselves know it. Huh. The implications of this book for Russian foreign policy and also for the United States. Now, this is the part I want to read especially, but what he says for Russia is that the decline in population is a necessary pre, uh, predecessor to their decline in their ability to function as a state with the infrastructure that they have. You know, the, the infrastructure that they have in Russia is built on a population of such a size. And this is true for any, any country. If you have an extreme drop in population in a short amount of time, I'm talking in the middle, in, in, in mere decades, and that's fast for a population and fast for a country. There is no, there is no, there is no stave, staving off the disastrous effects because if your population drops within two decades, to a critical mass, you still have people alive that represented the country from a greater population. And if that birth rate does not match that social structure, that ability to sustain its population, you will have, that country will experience economic disaster. 
economic disasters. And Russia will be, if they don't pull this back, will be in a, a panic mode trying to solve their own problems, which I know there's some libertarians out there that are saying, finally, finally we'll get Russia out of the world stage. Well, you know, okay, you want to say that they'll be too busy to deal with this? I say maybe desperation leads governments to do desperate things. So you can fling that door open a number of ways and a number of directions. But the human ethic in this is that they are causing their own birth decline. The idea that has always existed among progressive circles that the self is more important than uh, the ideals that are wrapped around family values as we know them here in the United States and as we define them. When you leave that in a progressive ideal, elevating the self and the self-desires and the narcissism of the progressive socialist mindset, mindset, that little bit of hedonism leads people to have fewer children. And I'm not making this up. This has long been a hallmark slogan, a hallmark belief of progressive population control theorists. You'll be happy. Have you heard this before? I'm sure you have. Women, in particular, will be happier, more successful, not as poor, if they just don't have children. So early in life, so often in life, if they're able to control their own bodies, if they're able to not have children and not be continually pregnant or pregnant when they don't want to be. Even to the point of not having any children because if children are an obstacle to personal happiness, success, career advancement, then why should you have them any at all? We have a huge uh, push. I shouldn't say huge push. That's not true. We do have a segment of American society today that has taken on that idea to its logical end. There are women out there in America that are voluntarily sterilizing themselves. They are voluntarily on a permanent form of birth control that will not have children, refuse to have children, because they believe that children in their lives well, to put it frankly, it would be a drag. So can we fault them for thinking, where did they get this idea? Can we fault them for thinking that when our own society here in the United States has been filled with that kind of thinking from the time we were young? There's too many people on earth. There's too many, and too many people is, are, on earth is going to cause starvation and disease and poverty and death. And, yeah, I did mention death. I'm not going to make a snide remark about how ironic that is. And, and lack of jobs, lack of opportunity is going to lead to abuse of women. I mean, they always trot out the women. Oh, the women, the women. Like, like we talked about last week about 
the issue of why Democrats go to war. It's all about the children, the children. You know, it's never about the children when they're talking about abortion. But all of a sudden it's about children. No, here it's all about the women, the women. Oh, the poor women. Poor women need to be need to have fewer people on earth in order for women to be happy and self-fulfilled. I'm not I'm not buying that because they're <laughs> aside from the face of the the, uh, the bald face absurdity of it, I'm just not buying that. And I don't think anybody else should. So I um so that's what that, I mean. The, the day of, I wanted to bring up another. Let me let me click over here to the other the other article, and this one is not written by a by a person who cares about population control. This one I just wanted to read you a paragraph. This person was more concerned about Vladimir Putin's other initiatives, uh, other things. Uh, so he, he says this is from Bustle. And Bustle says, sure, Russian, Russia remains a homophobic human rights nightmare, but do Americans get a day off of work to screw around? Russia is celebrating its eighth annual day of conception, where employees are urged to take the day off to procre- have procreative sex. The strange celebration, now she calls it strange celebration, is part of a gesture to increase Russia's struggling birth rate. And then she says, nothing about this makes any sense to me logistically. Why can't Russian couples just have sex at night, like normal working people the the world over? And considering the fact that the average sex lasts five to seven minutes, isn't a whole day for getting busy a little excessive? Uh, Okay. Obviously, the idea is more symbolic than practicality-based. Like in many industrialized countries, Russians are dying quicker than they're being born prompting quite a social political panic over women whose uteri stay empty. Although Russia seems to be the only country with a takeoff work for sex day, many countries have launched their own versions of fertility campaigns. In 2010, the South Korean government designated the third Wednesday of every month Family Day and closed its offices down at 7 p.m. The most bizarre campaign probably goes to Singapore, where a song produced by Mentos Mints in 2012 urged citizens to do their civic duty and make love for Singapore. Okay, I'm not going to go. Wow. <laughs> this is probably becoming the stupidest thing ever, and I've got one for today, so I'm not going to go further with that. <laughs> Leticia, Leticia, Leticia. Um, let me jump in here for a minute, because you bring up, um, you bring up, interestingly enough, what is happening in Russia, how how their population has declined because of abortion. But let's think right. about think about this for a minute. Since 1970, 35 percent of the black population in America has disappeared. Because of abortion, but you right. know what's really what's really interesting, Russia, you know the big bad scary Russia, who we were taught as kids, ooh the evil communists, they're gonna get us. Don't you find it kind of ironic that 
even as absurd, as crazy as it sounds, they at least have taken notice enough to try to stop the rapid destruction and decline of their community. But yet, when those of us in the pro-life movement who actually care about life, period, and we decide to take on the most daunting issue facing um, the abortion industry, which is the destruction of an entire community of people here in America, because that was the whole purpose. That was her whole purpose. But the fact of the matter is this. And God bless the pro-life movement as a whole. But, folks, it is time that you wake up. I understand that it's a tough issue to talk about because you don't want to be seen as racist and all this stuff. And the exceptions issue, you don't want to talk about exceptions because it's controversial. Folks, did it ever occur to you that it's controversial because it's wrong? Did it ever mm-hmm. occur to you right. that it's controversial because you have a pro- lot of pro-life people in a pro-life movement who frankly could care less if the black population is being aborted? Hmm. And I'm just being real. That's probably why they squirm and they're uncomfortable. But you know what? If you don't have a teachable spirit, you should not be in this because as Rebecca Keesley met with um, Governor Rick Perry last year or the year before, before Governor Perry met Rebecca Keesley, he was pro-life with exceptions until she told him her story. That man is one of the most prime examples of someone who changed their views literally Overnight. Right. Literally overnight. This was back during the presidential election, so it was it was twenty twelve. It was so, significant. It was significant yes, it because was, she was able to have a conversation with him while he was on his campaign. In the middle exactly. you know, president. I mean he wasn't running for governor. It wasn't I mean I mean, I guess President is kind of the next step after Governor, but he wasn't running for dog catcher. He wasn't running for something that was insignificant in this country. And in the middle of that busy campaign with all the attention on you, she was able to convince him to change his mind. And that is big. And that is what we need to do. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. I've had to draw some things back. I'm 100% pro-life without exception. I'm going to tell you something straight up. I do not like the bills that have the exceptions in them, and I will tell you two reasons why. One, it's personal because I fell under those clauses. But two, because what I have noticed is that when those bills get passed, they are left in the 
They are left as they are, and nobody goes back to work on or to even research and investigate what can be done to get those exceptions removed from the bills. Now, folks, even as much as I disdain those bills, and I'm telling you, and me and Letitia, we've had these conversations, but I understand it's the under it's the only way we can get something because as we know, liberals are not going to compromise. But this is what I say. And then we'd probably have to bring our guest down because he's been kindly waiting. This is what I say. Until we get to a place where we force liberals to start to come to the table. We need to start Labeling them as they are, labeling them in such a way that it will scare the bejesus out of them. And this is how we do it. Oh, okay, you're an, you're an abortion supporter. You, so you're okay with the extermination of an entire community of people. That's how we need to start phrasing the conversation because when we start labeling them and when we're labeling them, it'll be the truth because if you can sleep at night perfectly okay with the slaughter of an entire group of people, irregardless of their politics, my politics don't don't agree with the rest of my community, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to stand back and watch them continue to be slaughtered. Right. So having said that, we're so, going to yeah. be talking about um, – I want to say – I want to kind of set this subject up, even though you set this up in this power. Folks, when it comes to – the life issue, we're consistent across the board. The topic that we're going to talk about today, Letitia, and you take it from there. Oh, what kind of is that? <laughs> I'll set it up for you to set up the rest. Well, thanks a lot. I didn't say anything. <laughs> Well, I was gonna. Well, you. We normally play. I would have normally played our blood money trailer here, uh, that talked about uh, our our friend who owned uh, the the abortion clinics in Texas, and she had uh, talked about how she there was a whole plan for sex education for high school kids, especially the girls, that they would give uh, out low-dose birth control, be the expert in, in girls' lives, separate them from their trusting their families so that if they ever had reproductive issues or, or needed pills or condoms, that uh, that abortion clinic would provide those things with the knowledge that the knowledge, with the knowledge that girls would probably engage in sexual activity and get pregnant and then, they would provide the solution, which is an abortion, for these girls. And the goal that, that was set, that she had said, was three to five abortions for, per girl between the ages of 13 and 18, which is appalling. Uh, but, you know, that's from a, an abortion owner 
herself. But where did we get to this point where we were, where, where people are able to tell our children this and have it sound like viable medical, trustworthy information? On on the line with me right now is a a woman that I had met a few weeks ago when she came to St. Louis, Audrey Werner. Uh, she came and she talked about the history of sex education here in America, and it can be traced back to one very suspect source, one that we never really hear about in the public. He's not talked about. The source is never discussed, and his thoughts and teachings and methodology have been uh, infiltrating not only our public education system but our private education system and our churches. So with me on the air, please welcome Audrey Werner from Matthew 18, the Matthew 18 group. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leticia, for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming on. I knew that when I listened to your presentation, I knew I had to have you on our show to share with us exactly uh, the same thing and more of what you were talking about. Specifically, um, how did we get here? From there, and I mean back in the 1950s when sex education was just an idea, and how this has affected the church, what do we do to get ourselves out of it? Well, I I was listening to Thomas, uh, who was, uh, um, he actually did a great intro, so good job, Thomas, um, (laughs) on that, because it's all connected. and I have to say, uh, you know, my background is that I am a nurse. I was a sex educator. Uh, I used to be the one who taught sex education in the schools, and that's really where my journey began. Um, and as I taught sex education in the schools, when, when I had gone through the training, we were told that parents aren't doing their job, and so it's up to us to go in and uh, it, to teach children uh, about sex uh, about, you know, make sure they, they know the correct terms for the genitals and all of that. And so I did that for five years, and uh, I am married, and my husband and I had used birth control. We had waited because I was uh, all about my career. And so uh, when we made the decision to have children, uh, I went off, miscarried, and then uh, got pregnant again. Uh, and while I was pregnant, uh, I switched jobs uh, to go from full-time to part-time in the health department, There aren't a lot of part-time jobs available, so uh, the one I could do uh, was working in the STD clinic. So I worked in the uh, sexually transmitted disease clinic over an eight-year period of time, and during that time I saw things getting progressively worse. Uh, Once my child uh, was born, he was entering a Christian school, a Lutheran school, where they were teaching sex education as well. And I was really struggling with, you know, they had told us that we would decrease the pregnancy and the STD rate if we went in and talked to kids about sex. And I was seeing the complete opposite. Uh, It seemed like the more sex education we were doing, the earlier that children were becoming sexually active. So I was very motivated uh, from a, you know, from a nursing point of view, I was very motivated as to where did sex education come from who developed it, and what was the intent. And that's really where my journey began. And I always tell people, when you start to dig into uh, those questions about sex education, you can't help but find uh, that sex education came out of the sexual revolution, which is also where we got the population control movement idea, uh, the use of birth control, 
in marriage, outside of marriage. Uh, and so it's all kind of interconnected. It all has the same roots. And when I'm talking to pro-life crowds, I always challenge them to the fact, how pro-life do you want to be? Uh, because the, the, the root of the issue isn't abortion. Uh, the root of the issue is, do, are, we, are we welcoming children? Are we open to children that God may or may not bless us with? Uh, if right. we are, are going to separate, and that's really what um, the, the sexual revolution did or the teachings that came out of it, was that we, we knew before there was ever birth control, we knew that if a uh, couple engaged in sexual intercourse, there, there could be the possibility of a baby. So that's why it was reserved for marriage, because a husband and a wife could better raise a family uh, than a single uh, parent. So that was a big deterrent. Well, once the birth control pill was launched, which was in the 60s, and it's interesting to note, as Thomas was talking about, Margaret Sanger was a big proponent behind uh, the, the push for birth control, and right. she uh, was also a eugenist, so she went into the mm-hmm. black population and promoted birth control big time. Uh, so um, it, it, it's all that you have to, at that same time, you have to raise up a generation who would understand that they are sexual beings because they're being taught that, uh, they would be taught that having children isn't always a good thing. And um, they were taught that sex is great, but you might want to, the worst thing that can possibly happen to you would be getting pregnant. So these are all things that became interconnected. And, at, uh, you know, really we have to look at the roots of these things. And, and my ministry is basically looking, going into the churches because it wasn't just a Catholic thing. Uh, uh, there were all churches, all denominations uh, endorsed, um, uh, you know, children in marriage uh, because it's biblical, because God says be fruitful and multiply is where that came up from. And the population Mm -hmm. control movement really came out of the industrialists of our country uh, many, many years ago uh, because the uh, Fords, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies um, uh, had a lot of money uh, interests in all of this. And so uh, the Rockefellers actually funded Margaret Sanger as well as they funded a man by the name of Dr. Alfred Kinsey who later became known as the father of the sexual revolution. Yep. <laughs> right. So, yes. so tell us a little bit more about how did Alfred Alfred Kinsey affect pretty much everything that we know about sexual sex education here in America? Really? Right. Kind of well, and he's he's just one man, and it wasn't just him, but it was uh, he was funded. Uh, by the Rockefeller Institute. He was funded by the National Institute of Health, so our government was funding his studies as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And there was a plan. Uh, We were, we are, we still are a Christian nation, and the reason we're a Christian nation isn't because we have more Christians than Buddhists or Islamists or we have more churches than we have mosques or temples. The reason we're a Christian nation is because our laws and our government were founded on the Old and New Testament. That is why we are a Christian nation. And there were progressives who did not like that idea. And law means fixed in every language. So it's really hard to change the laws in this country because they're based on God's law. 
So you needed a man like Kinsey to come along who was supposedly a scientist who came along and said, oh, we are much more sexual than we lead on to, and my sex studies are showing something different. Now, the problem with his sex studies were uh, that he hired uh, or he took data from pedophiles who had raped children, and from that he said children are sexual from birth, hence why we need sex education. Uh, He went into prisons and sought out the most sexually deviant criminals, male criminals, and did his interviews with them, and he said this is the typical sexual behavior of the American uh, man in this country. And for the women, he interviewed prostitutes, and he said this is the typical sexual behavior. So uh, we have bad science, (laughs) which leads to bad results. So that is at the foundation. His science was used for Roe versus Wade. Uh, His science was used for the uh, reason that we have sex education in this country. And I will tell you that in the country of Croatia, they recently, as a country, threw out all of their sex education because they realized that it has been based on this really, really bad science. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful for this country as well. I, I certainly hope so. If uh, one country can throw out bad science, and certainly from what you have said, and from what the facts are, that that the, the studies are based on a deviant population, not on a normal American population. If everything is based on a on some kind of false pretenses, then the conclusions cannot be trusted. Anything that you derive right. from that study is suspect. And if a country can right. throw that that uh, research out, I certainly hope that we can too. Yeah, and and it's interesting. I call sex education. Um, I know Carol Everett. I think is that the person you were referring to yes. from Texas that was able. Okay. That's well, right. Carol Everett. I love how she calls sex education childhood pornography, and that is so mm-hmm. true because we're talking about showing children. Um, uh, naked pictures. We are talking about describing acts in detail. Um, and, um, you know, the, the question has to be, if we know that adults cannot handle pornography, and that's very clear, you talk to anybody who works for the FBI, and every sex crime is associated with pornography usage. Um, so if they cannot handle, uh, if adults can't handle pornography, what makes us think that children can? And um, I love what... Um, Uh, Lenin over in Russia said way, way back, he said America would never be changed by a Bolshevik-style revolution. Instead, he believed that we needed to remove God first from this country, and then the rule of socialism would be guaranteed if children were separated from their parents, which meant putting them in school, and taught to follow after their sexual instincts, which that's exactly what sex education is all about. So really, in this country, it's really time we've had sex education has been out there since 1964, and we have to ask ourselves, are we better off than um, uh, are things getting much better with more sex education that we're doing? Because it's amazing to me, there's this outcry, gosh, it's so bad right now. We need to do more sex education, and that's just ludicrous because you're throwing gasoline that's already on a very burning fire. Right. Well, how how did we get here from there? Um, how did this become uh, pervasive throughout our culture and even into our churches? 
Well, uh, you know, I can I can speak from, uh, and I use this as an example. Uh, trust me, I'm Missouri-centered Lutheran, and uh, I always say don't, um, you know, I'm not picking on the Lutherans, but because I'm Lutheran, I looked into our writings uh, because we um, started uh, a sex education program in the Lutheran Church in 1968, and I looked back to the origins of that sex education program, and I found uh, Planned Parenthood, the American Humanist Association, and uh, Kinsey's um, uh, Sex Education Information uh, Council of the United States, which is the, the arm of the Kinsey Institute that, uh, you know, was the clearinghouse for all sex education. So it was a well-thought-out plan. Um, it was uh, planned out, you know, over, a well, 100 years ago. And uh, the idea was to infiltrate every institution in our country. So uh, get into the schools, educate the teachers, uh, get into the colleges. We've got to train the, the, the teachers to, to look at children differently than what we used to look at them. Uh, in medicine, we, uh, we were always told in medicine, going through training, that children are sexual from birth, and I never understood, uh, you know, I mean, I just took that because that's what they said, but um, I didn't really understand the concept of that. Um, but we were always taught children are sexual. This is, we've got to teach them how to handle that sexuality. Um, but in essence, children are morally innocent. Uh, as we expose them to graphic information, and trust me, as a sex educator, I know the look on a child's face when I'm taking away their innocence. And it's not a pretty look. Um, you know, it's a very distorted look on their face. And that's what we, you know, and parents are being beat up because they're, you know, they're not talking to their kids about sex. And, and I can understand why parents squirm at that because, uh, as a matter of fact, I asked the number one expert on Kinsey, um, Dr. Judith Reisman, I asked her, Judith, why is it that, that parents have such a difficult time talking to their kids about sex? And she said to me, she said, Audrey, once you talk to kids about sex, you eroticize them to themselves, to adults, and to each other. And I thought, well, bingo. Um, God never designed parents to eroticize their children. So this is why we have this difficult time talking graphically with our kids about sex. It's because God didn't design us to do that. Um, we want our kids to be morally uh, innocent but not naive. And I, I did look at antique books. I looked to what did we do prior to the sexual revolution and sex education. And it was uh, a beautiful talk. It was kind of an indirect talk. It was through, guess what, the flowers, the birds, and the bees. And um, mm. it was always a reference to God's life process, the bigger picture, God's design. Um, and we've gotten away from that message now, and, and we've, we've gotten it to 12 years now that we spend with children in schools, talking to, having them go to the act and to the genitals every year, talking about masturbation and a whole host of things. So um, it was shifted as a mindset because each institution, and for me what was most shocking was that the church was one of the first institutions that was infiltrated, and uh, from what we hear from the progressives, it was one of the easiest to get. So um, my ministry is waking up the church. As a matter of fact, tomorrow morning I am teaching an online course to pastors across the country uh, called Restoring Biblical Purity in the Church, which is, much of what you went through, Letitia, when I was there in St. Louis. Right. I, I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm not. You're not able to see me, but I'm shaking my head uh, through through much of what you're saying. I cannot believe that it was um, 
that that churches were able to be so easily uh, convinced to spread the kind of, I would call it propaganda, sexual propaganda, uh, through Planned Parenthood and into our churches. And I just, you know, do you know how that happened? How that somebody got it in their idea that they're going to write a publication for church and use Planned Parenthood sources and use um, Alfred Kinsey's material as their source? Leticia, can I jump in in here before you two go on? Because I want to bring, I want to say something, Audrey and Leticia, that plays into this. Because like you said, it's all connected. Just like the church was complicit in the sexual revolution, the church was also complicit in the passing of Roe v. Wade. But you know... Mm -hmm. You don't talk about that a lot because I'm going to tell you, until the entire body of Christ as a whole repent for that, we're going to keep, we're going to keep seeing the things that happen. And it all came out, it's all rooted out of what Margaret Sanger and her cohort did, you know, the sexual, the sex trafficking, all that stuff, um, the Kinsey guy, that guy, you know, uh, anyway, I just wanted to say that because you are so right on, Leticia. It's, the church is complicit in a lot of things, and I, and I even take it back to our black churches. Black pastors do not talk about the abortion rate, the, the sexually transmitted diseases as well mm-hmm. that, that take place in our churches. Because as they say, it's between a woman and a and woman and God. Okay, if you believe that's between a woman and a God, woman and God, how can you sit in your pulpit and then preach about sin, but you won't touch, you won't talk to a woman about something that could potentially destroy her life because you want you're afraid to touch the subject of sexual deviancy in abortion. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Well, and um, how many yeah, how many sins do you hear about fornication, um, about adultery, about pornography? Um, you know, the root of uh, abortion is sexual sin. That's where you know this is an outcome of that. And exactly. we have gotten silent from the pulpit. They have gotten silent about sexual sin. And um, I read a book by Ray Comfort called God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. And uh, in there, uh, he explains, I think it gives a little, sheds a little light on what's happened to the church. And he said, the tragedy is that just over 100 years ago, when the church forsook the law in its capacity to bring the knowledge of sin and drive sinners to Christ, it therefore had to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. Modern evangelism chose to attract sinners using the issue of life enhancement. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. Sadly, we moved away from true evangelism by preaching a gospel of grace without first convincing men that they are transgressors. So we're we're not talking about sin in the pulpit anymore. We're not talking about the, we're talking about the consequences, but we're not talking about 
repentance, forgiveness, restoration, um, and turning from those wicked ways. So if if this is how the church shifted 100 years ago, this was like a perfect storm for the sexual revolution to come in um, because they became silent on the law issue, and it's all about gospel. Yep. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of truth to shifting our language away from sin and and having people. I mean, it, it just seems so. Oh, you know, it seems so confrontational. We don't want to talk to people about that uh, in in such a way because it might they might leave and they won't come back. Right. I think that was the primary. I think that's the primary motivation for changing uh, the language in such a way to completely avoid uh, right. the the issue of sin. Now, I'm not, you right. know, we're, granted, we, we have other ways with, that we try to bring people uh, to the recognition of their sin. We don't necessarily have to, you know, beat them over the head with with biblical language in, in, that's, you know, in the King James English. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, those churches that actively avoid trying to make people uh, feel bad about their own uh, transgressions against God, I think, are doing them a disservice, and they're doing the body of Christ a disservice, and they're not doing their job. Right. Um, I wanted to go back to. Um, hey, so you're saying that. What? Hold on just a second. What? Before you, hold on. No, no, no. You're on a roll with something, but I want to. I want to add just a little caveat. So hold that thought, because here's the thing. There is. There is a way that we can, in the body of Christ, in love, address the sin issue, and it's like this, especially when it comes to when it comes to people we care about. You know, someone is doing something that you care about, and this is what you do: you say to them, "You know what?" Or you ask them a question: "Why are you doing something that you've already been forgiven for?" And they'll look at you like, what are you talking about? You just opened the door to an opportunity to share with them about the price that Christ paid while addressing the issue of sin, and it's not confrontational. It's, it's possible to do it and talk about the sin. It's, just, it's that we just have too many spiritually lazy Christians that don't want to seek out the Lord and have them show. That's what I want to say. Go ahead. All right. Well, thanks, Thomas. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask that question and have Audrey answer uh, just about how the church uh, leaders have been able to accept so much of the propaganda from ungodly sources. <clears throat> I keep asking myself that same question. Um, I uh, as an example, I looked to the Lutheran sex ed program that was introduced to the Lutheran church workers in 1968, and in there it even says um, a social scientist has found public startling findings about people and their sexual behavior, and it's not what we thought. So we're much more sexual than we thought. So, I, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, Satan seems to to sneak in, um, uh, it, you know, very subtly, um, and um, 
I wish I could answer. Uh, I, you know, I was a small child when this came into being. I don't know what the mindset of the Lutheran leaders back then, what made them think to turn from the Bible, which, you know, if you look to God's word, he uses a tremendous amount of modesty in Scripture. Uh, an arm mm-hmm. is an arm, a leg is a leg, but when Solomon is describing his wife in Scripture even, uh, he goes from the thigh to the breast. He, and he skips the whole procreative area because it was treated with reverence because you knew, I mean, the, the procreation was, you know, you got together, a man and a woman got together, and God could bring new life. Two could become one, and there could be one flesh that came from that. And now that we've separated that out, and that's what the sexual revolution has done, is it separated procreation from pleasure. Well, if we as a Christian couple can now have pleasure without procreation because we can use birth control, or if we also, what we can do is if there's a oops, we can get the abortion. So, you know, we've, we've shifted our mindset on what was the primary purpose for that act um, how God designed it. And so if we, we separate it out, now we've got the most recent, which is the whole sodomy issue. Um, because, you know, if, if it's not a husband and a wife coming together and having children in a Christian marriage, then if we, we're going to say a husband and wife can just get together and have fun and enjoy and have pleasure, well, gosh, why can't a man and a man? And why can't a woman and a woman? So uh, we don't have a leg to stand on anymore as we turn away from God's design. Mm. Right, I, I absolutely do think. I mean, one of the things that I, I marvel at, and I met Mays, is when we talk about um, we talk about sexual intercourse, and then and we and especially when we talk about abortion, and we I continually come up against this idea that that people can have sexual intercourse, and then the, a baby that is maybe produced from that is kind of uh, an afterthought. It is separated from the act, but we all know that. Sex makes babies, and somehow right. we want to disconnect uh, and, and say that sex itself is not a, a reproductive act. Well, you can't. It's biologically biologically you can't separate that. And I just I'm I'm amazed every time we have this conversation that people don't seem to understand that having a baby is what comes from sex. It's like they don't understand anymore even though we all know that's the case. Right. Well, and like you said earlier in the program, um, you know, people are getting sterilized. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm in Christian circles, and, you know, mm-hmm. the wife will say, well, I, you know, I got my husband fixed, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. And, oh, I would never use the birth control pill because, yes, that might, you know, cause me to abort a baby, but, you know, or else I got sterilized or, you know, and it's like, okay, how is that <laughs> different um, because, again, we're turning away from, um, you know, God's design. And so if we become the deciders of who and when life comes, uh, you can understand why we can see society kind of crumbling and falling apart as we're moving away from. And it's interesting when you look at the Supreme Court cases before Roe versus Wade, um, you know, the very first thing that kind of started it was in 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, which allowed married people to use contraception. And so once that opened the door, once we said, married couples said, you know what, Um, we can have all the fun we want, we can have all the sex we want, and we don't have to have babies. We, you know, if God wants to send us one, we're just going to say no way, no thank you. 
So um, that's kind of where the, this mindset of babies were no longer welcome or wanted. And, you know, you back it up 100 years, and uh, children were, I mean, the more the merrier, the better, you know, the bigger the better. So, uh, you know, as we became went into the industrial part of this history, um, that is where the mindset, uh, you know, started to change. And it was wow, actually... Yes. The, yeah, and if we look at actually in the medical schools, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers greatly influenced the OBGYNs, uh, you know, in around 1910, 1915, somewhere in there. Um, they came in and said, you know, we need to have a standardized training, and they were most critical of the obstetrics and gynecologists. And so they started having these standardized trainings where they would give large grants to medical schools who turned away from naturopathy, homeopathy, chiropractic, any kind of natural care, which is what kind of what we used to do. And they would give larger grants to medical schools who would promote surgery and chemical drugs. And what's interesting is the pharmaceutical industry was founded by the Rockefellers, and the Rockefellers mm-hmm. then funded Kinsey Science, and what is one of the biggest money makers and what is being now accessible to everybody but birth control pills. And if you look oh, yeah. at the health effects of birth control pills on women, and I have on my website, on my homepage, I have an article, well-written article, um, by friends of mine who um, did extensive research. And this was actually an article that's been given to people in Washington, D.C., and it's called Why Not Indulge? And it gives all the history behind the normalization of the birth control pill. And it also gives all of the um, uh, medical implications of what the birth control pill does to a woman's body. And um, uh, if you think about it, if there was, if there's no birth control pills, there's no sexual revolution. And the reason mm-hmm. I say that is because before the birth control pill, you didn't have sex before marriage because you could possibly get pregnant. And, you know, you wanted to wait until you were married to do that because it's not so easy when you're single. And, uh, right. you know, I saw this played out. Uh, I always share this example of I saw this played out with a friend of mine who called me because she was upset because her 19-year-old daughter had gone to the OBGYN because she was having difficulty with periods. And, of course, they put her on the birth control pill. And my friend was really upset about that because her daughter was a virgin still but had a boyfriend. And she knew this was a setup for failure. And so uh, I said to her, I said, well, you know, we probably couldn't talk to your daughter about uh, purity at this point. I don't know that she's going to be so open to that, but how about we just talk about, because um, I was doing women's health talks at that point. I was working for a health and wellness company. So I said, let me do a little presentation on health, beauty, and well-being for women. And so I did, and I showed what the birth control pill does to women. And by the end of that presentation, the girl said, you know what, I'm getting off of that, and I'm going to use some natural stuff to help with the problems I have. Well, a few months later, my friend called me, and she was ecstatic. She said, guess what? My daughter ended up breaking up with her boyfriend because she was no longer on the pill, and guess what was happening? She was being pressured into having sex. Well, what did women do prior to the birth control pill? They said no. They said no. They waited until marriage, a majority of them. And I know everybody could say, oh, no, we were much more sexual. But the STD rate and the pregnancy rate would have shown that if that were the case. We had self-control back then. We were able to control our, and we we had the model, the biblical model in front of us as a society. So I know it's tougher today because we don't have that, and the church isn't holding it up there. They're not holding up the biblical model. 
So somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to get it going again. <laughs> so I, I want to get to what you think churches and Christians and what which and and beyond that, beyond the walls of the church, what can people do to kind of right this boat and get rid of the false information that we have been fed for decades about you know well, sex and sex ed. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I say there's three things, and and I'm, again, because I'm talking to the um, churches, but, I mean, this is three things that anyone can do, but I call it three things that Christians can do to save America. And the first thing is we have got to protect the moral innocence of our kids. We can't be sexualizing them at early ages. We have to hold the standard of and teach our kids about chastity, purity, modesty, self-control. Those were the standards we used to teach by. And uh, there are some, there are a few now, I'm, I'm seeing more and more come out, but there are a few good resources out there that help parents with that. That's the first thing we have to do is we have to be protecting our children. Do not sexualize your children. They're not sexual animals. If you hold them to the standard of chastity, purity, modesty, self-control, they will do it. I have my oldest son is in the military, and he's known as the virgin guy. It can be done. Uh, the second thing is we need to value all life. It's one thing to say you're against abortion, but are you open to life? And I can tell you as a former birth control pill user uh, that um, I have a lot of medical problems because of that. But I was challenged by a, a dear Christian friend of mine when I was 40 years old, and I'm uncovering all of this about the sexual revolution and the population control movement. And she said to me, she said, Audrey, what's one of the highest callings on this earth? She said, it's being a mom. And did it ever occur to you that God might have another one in store? Well, I was not too keen on that. I said, I'm going to have to pray about that one, Eunice. And so I did. And every reason I came up with not to have another child or be open to God bringing a child to us was uh, the same reasons that women have abortions. So I was wow. really convicted on that. And I, I realized, am I really open, Lord? If you have another child for me, am I open to receiving that? And, of course, my husband wanted 10 more, so he was, like, really open to it. Um, so uh, I did natural family planning for a year because I wasn't totally – I was kind of easing into it. And then at 41, I got pregnant, miscarried, and at 43, I had another adorable, cute little baby boy. So wow. um, uh, we have to be open to life. We're not going to win the battle against abortion as long as we're not open to life. Uh, in every aspect. So we need to relook at that of what are the reasons and why. Because if we're, as Christians, if we can't do this, then how can we expect anybody else in this country to do it? And then the third thing is, is that God desires the marriage bed to be pure and undefiled. And pornography has invaded the Christian marriage bed. And then we are it no has. different. Um, we have now taken the procreation out. We're going to focus on the pleasure uh, we're going to do um, abominations, as they used to be called. Sodomy used to be called an abomination by the Lord. Um, and now that is normal, mainstream in marriage beds, Christian marriage beds, not just among the gay people. Um, so there is no difference in that. So we're we're no longer honoring God in our marriage bed. We are now doing what the pagans did, what the worshipers of Baal did. So, again, we've got to, I, I go back to Second Chronicles 7.14, 
if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal the land. And we're in a bad state right now in this country. And the reason we are is because God's people have turned away from God's word. So I make appeal to those in the Christian community to get back to the Bible, to start reading it, because God's got a lot to say on all of that stuff. And um, understand that we've shifted as a country and we're a lot different than, um, you know, the last 60 years of the sex, 70 years of the sexual revolution has been devastating to us. So we need to get back to the old past. Oh, it's lots of great points, lots of great points. And I, I think one of the biggest faults we have in the church today is we don't talk about that. It seems like what everything that you have said is closed and we assume that our our current understanding that's informed by the world today is is the way everybody ought to think. And yep. what you have said, being open to life, being open to uh, you know purity in in our marriages and in the bedroom, is such a closed topic. It's 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 bordering on I think. And if you try to bring this up, it's bordering on meddling. And. <laughs> Yeah. And and I, I I don't think you know we even are open to that right now. Right. Yep. Yep. So I I hope that uh, as we talk about this more often, that Christian believers will begin to be more open-minded about that. I mean, it's it, it's very surprising to me, uh, and not in a good way, how closed-minded a lot of our Christians are in churches. Yep. And you know, for for what, you know, for whatever reason we think we're so open-minded, but yet on these things that we we don't talk about, don't talk about sex at, at church, um we're very close, but we let the world inform us 100% of the way. I that to me is is mind-boggling. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. We have got to wake so, up in the church. This is no stands for us. So tell us a little bit more about uh, the ministry that you operate. How to where where can people get in touch with you and um, look for more information? Uh, my ministry is called the Matthew 18 Group, and the reason it's called that is it's based on Matthew 18:15 to 17 which is if you find your brother sinning, you go to them. If they don't hear, you go back with someone else. If they don't listen, then you take it to the church. So this is a, a ministry of trying to wake up the church <laughs> to its reliance upon social science and moving away from God's word. And my ministry is, uh, I have a website, so there's a ton of information that people can get on this website. And the um, uh, I think you've got on your um uh, you have the information or the link to my website on your website, but uh, it's Matthew18.org is the website address, so you can go to that. Um, I do speak across the country. I speak to parents groups. I have a talk called How to Raise a Pure Child in an Impure World, so I talk to parents about the history behind sex ed, and then I take them to how do you teach your child about chastity, purity, modesty, self-control. I have uh, talks that I do with teens called Sexual Purity, a National Security Issue. It's important that the kids know the history of what's gone on 
Um, and I truly believe that this generation of teens are the generation that can bring this nation back, and they need to be um, challenged. They need to be motivated uh, and inspired to do that. And um, also I do trainings like I did. The one that you were at, Leticia, was the one I did with Concerned Women for America where I will come in and do an all-day training uh, which mm-hmm. is the information that I teach uh, to pastors, actually, through um, – I'm a teacher also. I teach at Masters International School of Divinity, which is an online school. Uh, primarily, I'm, I'm getting this information to pastors, to biblical counselors, uh, uh, to crisis pregnancy center directors. So, um, and they have uh, been – I've been praying for the last couple of years, just give me the remnant, Lord. <laughs> I'll, I'll deal with the remnant uh, right now and uh, because they're hungry for this. There are so many pastors. There are so many Christians. Uh, there are so many people that just are so overwhelmed with the sexual immorality that's going on in our country and just feel like it's hopeless. Well, the good news is that the sexual revolution is on very shaky ground. It's, it's based on the fraud of this one man. And so all of the laws that have been changed, all the new laws that are coming into being, um, can be overturned because they were, you know, these uh, the laws that, that were the biblical laws that have been thrown out were thrown out based on bad science. So we can actually restore what we've lost over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Well, I certainly hope that we can uh, begin with having that dialogue with our believers, and I, I do, I hold out the same type of hope that you do for our extremely young people, our teenagers, that they can um, see a, a real revolution and save themselves, I guess, from the three decades of of pain and suffering that uh, women in particular and the dead children that have resulted from this type of sexual sex, sexualization and sex education that we have seen. Thank you so much for sharing all of your information and for coming on the show. I, I know that you are pressed for time probably by now. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> got to get ready for tomorrow. But I, I enjoy right, being so, on your show, and I thank you well, to both of you. You, you guys have well, great comments. So. All right. Thank you for being on the show. Audrey, welcome, right. everybody. All okay, right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, I really appreciated Audrey coming on this sh- this program today. Um, it was has has been on my mind since I met her uh, a few last probably a month and a half ago uh, when she came to St. Louis and uh, kind of shared the as Thomas had pointed out the complicity. Well, there's one thing that that bothered me. Uh, well, there, there's one thing that bo- one thing that bothered me was the pervasiveness of this bad science and bad research that has produced sex ed as we have come to know it in our public schools and in our colleges and in any institution. But what took my breath away was the fact that the same material and the same way of thinking and the same attitudes that frankly are not helpful to young people and, and our children trying to learn about reproduction and learn about how to raise up a gener- next generation of, of Americans, of people, of human beings, was how much it affected and it was taken up by churches. And now she was talking about what what she had, just to go back and clarify, uh, the sex education material that her, her son 
at the time was learning from was thoroughly sourced in these secular progressive ideas of sex from Alfred Kinsey and Planned Parenthood, Alan Goodmarger, all that, all those uh, things, all those organizations. Um, that that took my breath away. How in the world did the church and I after this? How in the world did the church ever dip its information and try to dig this out from the bowels of secularism and put it in front of our children's eyes and talk about it as if it were science? It makes me question today how much of my own attitudes, how much of my generation's attitudes, and the attitudes of my kids' generation are are just dipped and steeped and grown up in this idea that uh, sex is only a reproductive act, and it's not even a reproductive act because our culture and our society is believing the lie that sex doesn't produce babies. It only produces pleasure and sometimes produces babies. So let's do our best to prevent children from being born from our acts of pleasure. To me, that is biologically nonsensical, and it's time that our society recognizes that it is biologically nonsensical. It is an absurd thing to think that sexual intercourse, acts of reproduction, don't actually and and don't actually have to produce the children, produce children from it, when that was exactly what it's supposed to do. Excuse me. So the way forward is uh, just I hope that what she hopes for America and hopes for our young people does come true. And it does come with not less education. I can hear a lot of these pro-sex ed people that, you know, my age, and maybe a little older, saying we have to teach kids more, 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 more. And I'm not saying that we should teach kids less. I think what Audrey is saying and what I think is where we should be headed is we need to teach kids differently, not more, differently. We need to restore a healthy understanding that our bodies are used for what they were designed to, to give glory to God and to bring up the next generation and to be whole again. And I think that's the underlying thing, what sex sex education has done to American children, American youth, is compartmentalize too much. We are no longer whole in our understanding of sex. I can get into a whole lot of stuff about that, and I don't want to right now. I want to move on, but I wanted to leave this subject uh, with the final thought that I have optimism just as she has optimism, that when we start educating our youth differently, that we will not only address the biological and and God-given need to have and feel pleasure with the opposite sex. We will also have that holistic understanding of family, of having children, of being and truly being one in in the scriptural sense. 
when we have that understanding, we will feel content and complete. We will finally be complete because we are operating in the capacity we were designed to operate and to experience the holism and the completeness that God designed us to, to experience within the context of marriage and sex and family and children and all of that. And I know my generation who has been steeped in the uh, the wave of Kinsey's sex ed models grew up in that. I know that the people of my generation are crying out for that type of holism. And it should, it breaks my heart to know that we're struggling so much to find what is clearly given to us in Scripture, in first principles, and in creation. And we're searching everywhere else for it at the right place. Okay, so we have a the end of the program coming. And I've been waiting so patiently to share this with you. Uh, this is now the stupidest time for the stupidest thing ever. And the stupidest thing ever uh, that I found today was the advice from Michelle Obama, our First Lady of the United States. I'm not saying that she's stupid, so all you haters can go home because I'm not saying that. I'm saying what, what she has just said, what she's going to say is pretty stupid. She sent in a video uh, to the Today Show, and it was all about kick more water because, well, just listen to it. Now with a brand new initiative today, and the First Lady, Michelle Obama, sent us a special message about it. Take a look. Hello, Today Show viewers, and good morning from the White House. Today I'm working to inspire Americans from all across the country to drink more water. That's why I've stolen Matt and Savannah's mugs and exchanged them with water glasses. Water is the best and easiest choice we can make to feel energized, focused, healthy, and refreshed. You are what you drink, and when you drink water, you're at your best. So drink up. Yeah, you hear at the end. <laughs> the poor anchor is like, if you say so. Of course, she's not going to contradict the president, uh, the, the first lady of the United States. But um, there is an element to this video that just sends chills up my spine. As laughable and absurd as that was, and, and it fits this to a T. It is the stupidest thing ever. I couldn't help but hear the word Kool-Aid every time she said water. I mean, if you didn't hear a slight tone of aggression in the First Lady's voice, then I, you weren't listening closely. Because what uh, part of me that was, was went, whoa, are you screaming out, danger, danger, oh, my gosh, you're trying, I mean, okay, so it's just water, you say. She's just telling people to, to drink water. From the White House. Today I'm working to inspire Americans from all across the country to drink more water. Hooray! That's why I've stolen Matt and Savannah's mugs and exchanged them with water glasses. Hooray! Water is the best and easiest choice we can make to feel energized, focused, healthy, and refreshed. You are what you drink, and when you drink water, Hooray! you're at your best. 
So drink up. So drink up. Oh, my gosh. Did that not sound like a command? Obey. It did. I know. She's going to be like, no, 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 no. It did it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it did. So uh, that is the stupidest thing ever. Thank you for listening to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Hopefully you'll have the rest of your Friday the 13th. Great. Go watch a scary movie and turn out all the lights. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll have a great Friday the 13th that way. Ha, 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 ha. See you next week, everybody. Have a great night. <laughs>